while everybody is finding their seat and coming in here. We've got a couple of announcements. Just a reminder that the men's prayer breakfast is um, a week from this coming Saturday at 7.30 in the morning. That's a great time. The men get together. We have a good time. We get to know each other as well as have a great breakfast. And then we uh, spend time in prayer, but we also spend time talking about uh, about the Word. And one of the uh, changes that we're we're making to this is that a couple of the men have sons that any son over the age of 10 or 11 is uh, can come and it's a great opportunity for sons to watch adult men who love the Lord and love his word and to observe how the men conduct themselves together and their focus on the Lord and that's an important aspect of training uh, boys in what it means to be a man and that men are interested in spiritual things uh, as well. So that's uh, a week from <clears throat> a week from Saturday on the 22nd and then also our fall picnic praying it doesn't rain. We're getting all of our rain now and that that's on Saturday, October the 20th. That's out near uh, Brookshire. We'll have all that information available and uh, that's usually a great time. It starts about noon and goes to about three or four in the in the afternoon. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll begin with a uh, few moments of silent prayer to give each one the opportunity to just make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord. Our Christian life is predicated on a walk by the Holy Spirit, an ongoing, continuing uh, abiding in Christ, letting his word abide in us. But when we sin, that rapport with God is broken, enjoying that relationship, the joy of our salvation is is broken. And so it is restored through confession, simply admit or acknowledge our sin to him. And he forgives us of those sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, tonight as we come together, we are reminded again of your grace, of your goodness to us your manifold provisions for us, the way you 
Give us what we need through your word and through God the Holy Spirit, that we may walk by the Spirit, and that through him and through your word, your, the character of Christ, the image of Christ is developed within us. Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight and we continue to talk about worship, that we may take this to reflect upon our own mental attitude, for worship takes place within each of our own minds. It is our own mental attitude. It's not determined by external things, but by our own focus, our own volition, our own uh, decisions to focus upon you. And we pray that you would help us to understand how this can be enhanced in our own life, especially through our reflection upon your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Genesis. You might as well turn to Genesis chapter 12. And what we've been talking about, tracing worship as it develops through the scripture. Uh, This is something uh, unusual for some people. It's called uh, the idea of progressive revelation, that God revealed himself to Adam and Eve in the garden. And it may surprise you to think about the fact that if God had not revealed himself, as well as other things, but if there was not revelation to them in the garden, what would they have known to do? Think about that. What would they have known about the world around them? So that what we see is fundamental to really human life and being human as being in the image and likeness of God is divine revelation that man is created to have that rapport with God where God is the source and the foundation of his knowledge. We live in a post-enlightenment world today where where we we have think that knowledge comes primarily and foundationally from either our senses or from our reason. And it is forgotten that it is God who gave us the senses and God who gave us the reason and God who informs us still uh, through general revelation and then as we come to his word through special revelation. But that's what we see at the very beginning in, in, uh, in Genesis is this emphasis on revelation and then the Uh, disobedience to God's revelation that occurs in Genesis chapter 3. And then God provides the means of restoring that relationship to him uh, through sacrifice. And so we've been focusing on sacrifice as a foundational element in a post-fall world in order to have a relationship to God. So what we have seen is that failure to know the word leads to a breakdown in worship. And that's important for us individually that that the Bible is, to coin a word, logocentric. It is word-centered. Logos is the Greek word. It's the word for the word. It is the word also for the, for the written word as well as the living word. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God and the Logos was God. So the Bible is Logos-centric, and we need to be Logos-centric and Theocentric or God-centered in our lives. Otherwise, we don't have worship. Worship is not me-centered. It's not egocentric. Worship is not man-centered. It's not anthropocentric. 
Worship in the scriptures we see it developed is always related to the response to divine revelation. Second thing we've learned is that sin must be dealt with before worship can take place. The worship that existed in the sanctuary of the Garden of Eden was broken by sin. God had to restore that, and he did so uh, through teaching them about sacrifice when he clothed them uh, with animal skins. So sin has to be dealt with first and foremost. Third thing we've seen is that worship is on God's terms and not man's terms. We define worship on the basis of what God says. It's not how we feel. It's not how other people around us feel. It's not even the environment that we're in. Now think about that, because one of the fads that has been developing over the last 20 years is to create a certain ambiance for worship. I want you to think about something as we go through these passages in Scripture. What kind of an ambiance did God create in Genesis 3? What kind of ambiance is created as Noah and his sons and their wives and his wife come off the ark and he begins to uh, cut down wood or to find wood to pick it up so they can have a burnt offering and to find the seventh of the clean animals so that he can slaughter it and roast it on the fire uh, as a burnt offering to God. What kind of atmosphere is there? The lights dimmed. Does the music come up slowly? Is there a little fog machine that blows smoke out to create the right atmosphere? None of those things. As we go through the scripture, we don't see anything like that happening anywhere. Modern man has rejected God and the importance of a personal knowledge and walk with him to such a degree that he has to artificially create what he has defined as the right worship tone and mood so that he can call it worship. But what we see in the Bible and some things I may read tonight if we get to it is that worship comes as a result of our personal understanding and walk with God and our reflection upon that and how that impacts our own soul. We start with God's definition, not man's definition. We see that worship is based on sacrifice because of sin, that that uh, doorway to God, that uh, entry to God must open only because there is a sacrifice and there's either the penalty paid or cleansing of sin. And that as we saw in our study in Genesis 12, worship leads to the proclamation of God's character, which is what that phrase means to call on the name of the Lord. At the end of Genesis chapter 4, with uh, Adam's grandson, the statement is made, and men became to call on the name of the Lord. And we look at Exodus 34 and Exodus 33, where God himself is said to call on the name of the Lord, which tells us that it's not prayer. It is, and, and then it's defined in the, in the following verses as God displaying and describing uh, verbally his character, his forgiveness. This comes right after the uh, sin with the golden calf. And God talks about how he is gracious and merciful 
and forgiving. And that that is what it means to proclaim, uh, to call on the name of the Lord is to talk about his, his essence, who he is, and to proclaim that to people. When it comes to sacrifice, the issue is not that it's seen by men, that it is seen by God. Later, men may see it, but that's not the point. The point is, this is what Jesus confronted the Pharisees with, is that that they are doing things to be seen by men. And he says, no, you need to pray in your closet, which was an old King James, uh, old Elizabethan word for your your private chamber, your bedroom, uh, not not what we think of as a closed closet. You know, if you had to go pray in your closet, some of you may not be able to fit in there. Others of you have way too much room. So fundamentally, we don't do it to be seen by men. It is to show our submission to exalt God and to express our gratitude uh, to God. It is a gift. That which we bring is of value. I talked about uh, when you bring the firstborn of the flock, this is something that takes a lot of in, uh, of effort and observation. You have to know which lamb was the firstborn in the spring and to make sure you don't lose that lamb among all the other lambs that are being birthed at that time. You have to uh, pin that lamb off and specially prepare this lamb and feed the lamb because this is the lamb you're going to sacrifice to God. And that's going to cost time, effort, energy, and money to uh, take care of this lamb. And I compared that to watching a junior high or high school kid in 4-H or Future Formers of America uh, taking a young calf or any animal and raising it for a year or so to bring to the county fair or to the stock show or something uh, like that. Third, as such, we see the sacrifice is the basis for fellowship with God. We see this in Genesis 8, uh, 20. Um, we also see it in Genesis 3.21, that's the very beginning, and then in Genesis 8.20 uh, 20 and 21. And we see that uh, with Abraham, we see sacrifice becoming the basis for proclamation. We just have that phrase, calling on the name of the Lord, once at the end of Genesis chapter 4. They're doing it throughout those generations leading up to the flood. And there were probably some who were calling on the name of the Lord between the uh, uh, end of the flood through the Tower of Babel incident, not there, but just those who were on the earth, the descendants of Noah, and then at the time of, of Abraham. Because as we're going to see tonight, when, he, uh, when Abraham comes back from his victory over the uh, armies of the east and he meets the priest king of Salem, who is a worshiper of God, where did he come from? You know, here you have a Gentile priest king who is a worship a worshiper of God Most High, who's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's not, no, nothing pagan about him, as we will see. So there were those who called on the name of the Lord after the flood. They're just not mentioned in Scripture, but it's surely indicated by the presence of Melchizedek. Now, one of the things that we're going to talk about as we get into the life of Abraham and work our way through Abraham and worship through the period of the patriarchs is I want you to have a conception of the geography that we're talking about here. And so what I've put up here on the screen is a map of the Middle East. 
this large area that comes down here in the center, that is the Arabian Peninsula. Most of that today is Saudi Arabia. Down at the base, you have things like Yemen and Kuwait and uh, some other places along the Gulf. But here you have uh, what was historically the Arabian Peninsula. This small peninsula up here just below the red circle on the left, that is the Sinai Peninsula. That's where, at the base of which is traditionally the location of Mount Sinai, but it, we don't know exactly where it was somewhere on that peninsula. So this is the ancient Middle East. Over here to the right of the large peninsula, the Arabian Peninsula, you have the Persian Gulf. We hear a lot of talk about the Persian Gulf. And so to the right of the Persian Gulf or to the east of the Persian Gulf, you see a lot of uh, rugged territory, mountain ranges and everything there. And that today is called Iran. That is ancient Persia. Okay, so if you go to the area just north, just above the Persian Gulf, you see the word Shinar. Shinar was the original name, the plains of Shinar. This is the original name for Babylon. And the plains of Shinar. And so when, when in the Second Gulf War, the American troops uh, invaded I Iraq, they came up from the south here, the two rivers that flow down through the uh, plains of Shinar, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And somewhere near the end where they flow into the Persian Gulf is where Ur of the Chaldees was located. This was where Abraham lived when God called him in Genesis 12.1 and said, I'm going to take you to a land uh, that I will show you. Leave your home, leave your, leave your family. Now, this area in the ancient world was known as the kingdom of Sumer, S-U-M-E-R. Abraham was not a Sumerian. He was called later in Scripture a wandering Aramean. And an Aram, A-R-A-M, is located up in this area where you have the uh, uppermost uh, red circle. That area is today modern Syria. And so in northern Syria, it, about the middle of where that circle is, was a town, a city called Haran. This is where Abram's family had originated. This was where his his clan goes goes to. And he had left and established himself. He was probably a merchant of some sort uh, down in uh, Ur of the Chaldees. And so he leaves and he goes back to Haran until his father Terah dies. And then he still has his nephew Lot with him and he leaves there and comes into the center of this area, this circle on the left, which at that time is the land of Canaan. Okay, so that gives you your basic geography, your basic orientation. Up here on the far, far sort of north, uh, central to the west here, that peninsula sticking out here, that is Turkey, modern Turkey. And, and it was a number of different uh, regions and nations in the ancient world. Now here we're zooming in just a little bit more. We have Ur, the Chaldees, identified on this map at the lower right. Haran is in the upper circle. And then I have three circles over here in the land of Canaan. The northernmost is identified as Dan. That is ancient Laish. Now that's important because we're going to look at what happens in Genesis chapter 14. And in Genesis 14 you have these... Uh, uh, four kings 
who come from this area, the Tigris-Euphrates, the area of Babylon, and they've brought a major army with them. And they're invading the land that God is going to give to Abraham and his descendants. And this is a power control thing. And you, throughout Scripture, you always see this contest, this battle back and forth between Babylon and Jerusalem. Babylon and Jerusalem, Babylon representing the kingdom of man and Jerusalem representing uh, God's kingdom and God's plan. So over here, you have at the far north, the town uh, of, it's later called Dan, but in the, uh, in the Canaanite period, it's called Laish. And Abraham will come down from the north and as he comes down, he's going to go past Laish, and he drops down to about the middle of this circle right here to Shechem, Shechem in Hebrew. And this is where he first builds an altar and calls on the name of the Lord in Genesis twelve six and 7. And God is going to make a promise there that he's going to give all of this land that he sees to, to Abraham. And so that is where he first calls on the name of the Lord. Then he will lead there, and he'll go a little further south to um, uh, camp out between Bethel and Ai. And then he goes past just this little uh, Canaanite village called Jezreel, which is late, and our, our Salem, uh, which later be, is, is renamed Jerusalem. And then he'll go further south down to Beersheba. And we see that displayed here on this uh, zoomed-in map. We have uh, Dan in the north, then Shechem, then Bethel and I right here where he camps out. And that's just such a cool thing. You've heard me talk about it before. First time I was driving on that highway and we stopped and uh, the, gu the guide said, over here on your left is Bethel. And you can see it from here and over here to your right. You can see that hill. That's that's Etel. That's where I is located. We're right in the middle. And later, like two what was it, two years ago when I was back there, we went there with Joel Kramer, and he took us to a site about maybe three or 400 yards off of that highway where you could still see the floor of a Byzantine church that was built there in the, in the fourth century. To, and it was built on a site. You know, in America, if we... We got here late. We get here 1600s, 1700s. We go somewhere and somebody says, well, this was, you know, and tell us some legend about some site and there's no documentation or anything. Well, you go into the Middle East and somebody around two or 300 says, this is where Abraham sacrificed to God, where Isaac sac sacrificed to God. Then when you, uh, you can pretty much take it to the bank that they know what they're talking about because they've, They've been commemorating things on that site for maybe 2,000 years already. And so when the Byzantine church is built there, it was built on something that was already there as a memorial to what had happened there just out, just between Bethel and I and events that we'll look at uh, tonight and maybe, maybe next, next week. So th then Abram goes south to Beersheba, and he will spend much of his life in and around Beersheba, but a few other times he will come up north, and he will come up to, um, he, he will come up to, to uh, the area around Sh uh, Shechem again. 
what we learn from observing his sacrifices and the sacrifices later on are sacrifices are not made because God needs us, but because we need God. We're not bringing food to God. This is the pagan idea. Somehow they need to feed God. Uh, the Canaanites would bring beer and put it on the altar. Like God needs a beer. Now, later on, you've heard me joke about this, but there are strong drink offerings in the, in the Levitical laws and legislation. And the reason you'd have these strong drink offerings, first of all, it's not bringing scotch and vodka. Strong drink is, is a bad translation. Again, the thundering diction of the King James. The Hebrew word refers to barley beer. And why is that important? Because the barley harvest has come in, and you're producing something from the barley. And beer in the ancient world uh, what was not quite as alcoholic as it is today, but it is a way that, that many times workers would carry that to lunch. They had some sort of gourd or uh, like a wineskin or something like that that they would carry beer in because it was nutritious and it was easy to carry, and that's what they would drink for lunch. Um, some things haven't changed much except perhaps the alcohol content. And so when God wants a strong drink offering, this is bringing the, the best, the produce of the field. These were the, it was an agricultural uh, culture. So what we saw last time was in Genesis 12.5. Now, this is, one of the reasons this is important is in Genesis 15.6, so you might want to turn there. This is one of the more interesting uh, debates that goes on in the Old Testament. It's very important to understand this because a lot of people uh, don't really know how you got saved in the Old Testament. C.I. Schofield really didn't understand that. In his Schofield Reference Bible, he thought they were saved by keeping the law. You're not saved by keeping the law. You're saved the same way in the Old Testament that you're saved in the New Testament, by grace through faith in the promise of God. In the Old Testament, the promise was a future Savior who would pay for sins. Now we look back to a completed salvation by a risen Savior. So that's the, that's the difference. In the Old Testament, they believed the promise of God. He made a promise to Eve in the garden that the seed, that her seed, the seed of the woman, would defeat the seed of the serpent. And so they believed that. Now more is added as you go through time and through progressive revelation. But when we get to Genesis 15, 6, we have this statement, uh, and he, that is Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And, and the word there for accounting to him as righteousness is the Hebrew word chashav, which means to account something. It's an accounting term, to reckon it to their account. Uh, today in modern Hebrew, chashav is used for a computer and computing various forms of the word. And it's, it's like God is adding up uh, your sins, but you've been given righteousness, so that cancels out the sins, and you have the righteousness of God that's that's given to you. So Abraham is gets righteousness. Now the debate that comes up is when did he believe God? What did he believe from God? And I touched on this last time, and 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 it wasn't until I've started going through this recently that I've come to understand that there that, that the significance of this is that in Genesis 15, 6, it's sort of a paraphrase. God has promised him that he's going to have a, a seed and that seed is going to come from his 
uh, from his own body, and it's not going to come through adoption through his uh, through his uh, servant Eliezer. And he makes a promise at the end of verse five, saying, "So shall your descendants be." And then it says, "So and he believed in the Lord." And a lot of people just read it without understanding what lies behind the Hebrew tenses there, and they think verse six follows verse five. But when it says, and he believed, it uses a verb construction of a past tense that indicates that verse 6 is really a parenthetical reminder that God is making this promise to Abraham because he has already at some unspecified time in the past believed in Yahweh and God imputed it to him as righteousness at that particular point. So when you look at that, then you know, okay, Abraham has already believed God. Well, when did he believe in the Lord? And so you turn back and you see that he shows all these acts of faith in chapter 14 and then in chapter 13 and then in chapter 12. And in chapter 12, it just begins in in the middle of Abram's life and says says that the Lord had said to Abram, and then you have this command of God, lech to get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house. But is he talking to Avram as an unbeliever or is he talking to Avram as a believer? He's talking to him as a believer because we know that when he leaves home and he goes to Haran, and this is what I was pointing out last time, that that twelve five says Avram took Sarah his wife, Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they'd gathered, and the soul and this this is when they're in Haran after his father died, and the souls whom they had made in Haran. That's the literal translation from the Hebrew. The way it's translated is awkward because it looks like they had acquired slaves and servants while they're in Haran, but it doesn't use the word for acquisition there. It doesn't use the words that are used for purchasing or owning a slave. It uses a word, the simple literal meaning that they had made these souls. How does that happen? Is the first time that he calls on the name of the Lord when he builds the altar at Shechem? At Shechem? No. He was already calling on the name of the Lord, but this is the first time he calls on the name of the Lord in the land that God promised him. That's why that's emphasized. And so the implication here from Genesis 12.5 is that while he was in Haran, he is uh, making proclamation about who Yahweh is and what he has done for him. That means he is proclaiming the gospel in Haran and that he has, they have made these souls in terms of the fact that they have been born again, they have come to salvation. And now this huge entourage of people come with him. For chapter 14, we're going to see that is over 300 uh, young men that are there that are warriors that he's put together as an army. He's a great military commander because he goes after this major army from the kings of the east and defeats them. So it tell we see this this view of uh, of Ram where he is compared to a a sheikh or a chieftain a, a Bedouin sheikh or chieftain because he's put together this huge huge army and he has such wealth in terms of the number of people who are with him and their flocks and their herds and all those people 
So I pointed this out last time. This is what happens that he understands who God is, and he's been making proclamation about that. And as a result, he goes to Shechem, and he um, goes further, and he's making proclamation all the way down through the land. He builds an altar after he leaves Shechem, or Shechem, and he goes down to this location between Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and he calls on the name of the Lord. And he does this all the way through his life, and we get to Genesis 21:33 near the end, just before the uh, command to sacrifice Isaac, and we're told that he plants a tamarisk tree that has a memorial sense to it in Beersheba, and there they call on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. So here we see that there's something added in terms of this name of God, that he is the eternal God. And there's a progression that occurs in terms of Abraham's understanding of, of who God is and his understanding of the essence of God and his proclamation of the gospel. I would guess that most of you here who have been saved for more than 15, 20, or 30 years that your understanding today of the gospel and of the Trinity and of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross is much more profound than it was uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And you can do a much more, uh, a much better job of proclaiming the gospel because uh, you have a better, a better knowledge base. So, we look at this passage, I just wanted to point this out. This is a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. It's not the one that was there, okay? But that's that's what a tamarisk tree so looks a little bit like a, a, um, a mimosa or something like that, but not, not quite, but it's, it's, it doesn't have large flat leaves. It has uh, skinny leaves like a mesquite tree. So what we see is that Dave, Abraham has a very different view of God than the pagans around him. He has a view of God as a holy God, and he has a very high view of this God, that this God is not like the pagan gods who are part of creation, but his view of God is that God is the creator God who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. He understands that everything he sees, everything that has been made, Everything comes from God and has been created out of nothing. He has a, a, a view of creation ex nihilo that no pagan in the ancient world had. There's no uh, pagan religion that has any kind of view of a creator God. The gods are already in existence in terms of their mythology. There may be descriptions of battles between gods who have very physical-type bodies, and one of the gods is killed, their body's cut up, part of the body is used to make the heavens, and another part of the body is used to make the earth. Those are the kinds of things you find in paganism. But with Abraham, he has a distinct god, a holy god, and this is a very high view of God. Now, something we learn in worship is that a high view of God should go hand in hand with a robust view of sin. But often what we find when we talk to people is they don't have a very high view of, of uh, God and they have a very low view of sin. What I mean by that is their views, view of sin is pretty trivial, pretty superficial. But if we, have, if we really spend the time 
thinking and reflecting upon who God is. That's part of worship. Uh, the Bible talks about it as meditation. Biblical meditation isn't letting everything go out of your mind. It is focusing your thoughts and reflecting on Scripture. Bible study can be part of worship. As you sit at home, you go through your basic foundational way of learning the Bible, which is to read it. And then as you read some passage, you say, well, I wonder what that means. So you may do any number of things. If you've gone through the Bible study methods course, you can do uh, word studies. You can break it down. You can uh, look things up in a commentary. You can look to see how I taught the passage. That's going to give you a better understanding. But you need to take time just to think about it yourself on the basis of what you know uh, about Scripture. And that's called meditation. And when we look at the Psalms, for example, we see the results of David's meditation is he's reflecting upon who God is and he reflects upon uh, God's plan and God's uh, promises to him. Now, just recently, I've, I've known of uh, this individual for some time historically. I came across a book called The Devotions of uh Sir Lancelot Andrews. Lancelot Andrews was the head of the translation committee for the King James Version. He was arguably a child prodigy in languages. He picked them up like children pick up dirt. He, he, by the time he was 10 or 11 years old, he knew all of the biblically related languages, plus he was fluent in several other languages in Europe at the time. And he becomes one of the most profound language scholars and biblical scholars of his generation. He preached many times at the court of St. James, James I of England, who becomes king after Elizabeth died, who was the Elizabeth I, the Queen of England. He was considered by some to be the greatest preacher of his generation. He rises through the ranks, and he is the man, if you read in your King James or New King James Bible, the man who translated the Hebrew into the King James in, from Genesis uh, through Second Samuel was Lancelot Andrews. On my signature, on my emails, uh, sometimes when I, when I put it in, the closing quote is from Lancelot Andrews. He said, We preach not what men wish to hear, but what men at one day in the future will wish they had heard. That is a profound statement. He was a man of his time. We don't produce people like this. There are some people who are, do something like this. They like to journal and they like to write diaries. But that's not something that is endemic to our culture. But when you don't have television and you don't have movies and you're not constantly being entertained by your iPhone and your iPad and whatever else you might have that entertains you, then what do you do with yourself? Well, you think. You think profound thoughts. You've heard me say on many occasions that one of the differences between the classic hymns, I want to talk about what I just said a minute. For about 10 or 15 years, I've had 
heard this phrase that so-and-so or something is old school. And it always rubbed me wrong. And I've thought about this recently, and, and old school is a term to minimize and dismiss something that may be very, very good, but it's considered old-fashioned, and it's treated as if, well, you know, we, we just have to do it better now. And so we dismiss it with this term, it's old school. Let me use a fashion analogy. In fashion, you have fads and trends. We've all seen them come and go. But you also have certain things that are classic. A navy blue blazer is a classic. No matter what the fads do, a navy blue blazer is always in style. It's a classic style. You have certain uh, dresses that uh, women wear that are just classic designs. They're as much in, in style today as they were 20, 30, or 40 years ago. Purses, hats, because they're just of a classic style. And there are things about music and about hymns that are classic. They endure through the ages. Most of the, quote, contemporary Christian choruses that were sung when I was in college and later in my 30s in a church I took over in Irving are no longer sung. They're not classic. They will not endure. They are something that's that are just ephemeral and they'll blow away in the breeze because there's no depth to them. They're not the product of somebody who has reflected profoundly and has been impacted profoundly in the depths of their soul. At the time of Lancelot Andrews in the late 1500s, early 1600s, that people would write down their thoughts and they would compose prayers and think through those prayers. And those prayers were deep and profound reflections and personal reflections of the Word of God. After Lancelot Andrews died, it was discovered that he had been writing down his prayers. He would write them down so that he could concentrate so that he could reflect and pull up key phrases and ideas from Scripture, which he knew, and he wrote them down so that he could pray those prayers and they would not be just something off the top of his head of the moment of the day. And that's not something that was unique to him. There are books and books of these kinds of things that were produced uh, in the Church of England and among uh, Puritans and Separatists during the uh, this period of the of the 16th century, and so I have downloaded this. I'm going to read some of these as we go through the coming coming weeks to give you an idea. And this was never written to be seen by anybody. This is an individual who's writing this between him. And God, and he wants, when he talks to God, he wants to say it the best way he can, and he wants to get it right. And it's not written for anybody else to ever see. But it was seen, and it's been published, as many were. This is his view. Talk about a high view of God and a high view of sin. This is a prayer of confession of sin. Now, some of the language is a little. Uh, different. It's antiquated. 
at the opening line, he says, merciful and pitiful Lord. Now, pitiful today means something quite different. But its root meaning was full of pity, and by pity they meant compassion, okay? So we think of pitiful as something that's, that, that's, that's really sad, uh, but that's not what it meant at that point. So I just want to make that point. He says, merciful and pitiful Lord, long-suffering and full of compassion. I have sinned, Lord. I have sinned against thee. O wretched man that I am, I have sinned, Lord, against thee much and grievously in observing lying vanities. See, often when you and I have been exposed to Hollywood's version of the Puritans, we get this impression of this arrogance and this legalism. That's not what you see here. This is a man who looks at himself and sees, like like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, he's unworthy to be in the presence of God in his prayer. And he's working his way through uh, confession. He says, I conceal nothing. I make no excuses. I give thee glory, O Lord, this day. I denounce against myself my sins. Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord, and thus and thus have I done. I have sinned and perverted that which was right, and it profited me not. And what shall I now say, or with what shall I open my mouth? What shall I answer, seeing I have done, I have done it? Without plea, without excuse, self-condemned am I. I have destroyed myself, O Lord. Righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto me confusion of face. And thou art just in all that is brought upon me, for thou hast done right, but I have done wickedly. And now, Lord, what is my hope? Art not thou, Lord? Truly my hope is even in thee. If hope of salvation remaineth to me, if thy loving kindness vanquisheth the multitude of my iniquities. O oh, remember what my substance is, the work of thy hands, the likeness of thy countenance, the reward of thy blood, a, a name from thy name, a sheep of thy pasture, a son of thy covenant. Forsake not the work of thine own hands, Hast thou made in vain thine own image and likeness? In vain if thou destroy it. And what profit is there in my blood? Thine enemies will rejoice. May they never rejoice, O Lord. Great, grant not to them my destruction. He goes on for three more pages. That's just the prayer of confession. But what that tells us is this is a man who has thought about the scripture. He's read it. He knows what it means. He's gone to Bible class. He's done his Bible study. And what it brings him to is a personal face-to-face encounter with the holy God of scripture. And as such, he knows he is not worthy to even come to him in prayer without first confessing sin. And you read through it, he understands grace. He understands his sin is paid for. But confession is, doesn't mean to treat sin cavalierly or lightly. 
And I'm not saying that we need to be going through this, but what I'm saying is that when we think about worship, it's not superficial. When we read the classic hymns of the faith, we see that the people who wrote those thought deeply and profoundly about who God was and what God had provided for them. There is a depth there that that continues through centuries. We sing these hymns generation after generation, decade after decade, century after century, because they are classic and they teach and reflect upon the basic doctrines of Scripture. And that's what we see there. It shows that he has a very high view of God and a very high view of sin. And many people who are grace-oriented have a low view of sin. When we reflect on what it took for Christ to pay for our sin, it might give us a greater appreciation of the damage. Sunday morning I talked about the uh, reparation sacrifice, that that's the word that's used uh, to describe Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Someone asked me, said, well, what did... The rep- what, what all did Christ have to pay back? In what sense did man defraud God? Well, God created the heavens and the earth and the seas, and everything was perfect, and by one decision, God, man destroyed everything that God had made. That's a pretty serious defrauding. Uh, Jesus Christ paid for all of that beyond anything than we can possibly imagine. It is, it, it, he, he did everything ten times over by the payment of his death because of sin. And that's something to reflect upon, not to mire ourselves in in some sort of guilt trip or anything like that, but because it should lead us to a wonder of God's grace and forgiveness. We look at what happens, as I talked about before, before, um, in Exodus 32 about the golden calf incident, and we see God declaring uh, his name, calling upon the name of the Lord, God doing it. What's he doing? He's emphasizing his loving kindness, his graciousness, his mercy, forgiving uh, to the thousandth generation. And all of this describes how, how the depth of his love and his mercy. How frequently do we stop and spend 15, 20, 30 minutes just thinking about how that impacts our own life? That's what builds in us a profound spiritual maturity and depth. And that's what we see when we read some of these types of things. And as I said before, they're not written to be read. They were just someone's individual private reflections upon God to, designed to help them focus more in their, own, in their own prayer life. So we come to Genesis 14. Genesis 14 is a story of this war that takes place. And you have in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, the king of Elisar, Haderleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of nations. The real leader in this group is often said to be Haderleomer when the first one listed is Amraphel, the king of Shinar. Shinar is Babylon. He's the real, uh, real leader of this coalition. And they come in, they're going to make war with the five kings of the valley, which include the two kings of Sodom 
and Gomorrah. Now, these aren't great kings. These are territorial rulers over the area of Sodom, the area of Gomorrah, the area uh, of uh, uh, Adma and Zeboim and Bela, which is uh, called Zoar. So they come in, they swoop down, and they destroy these towns, and they capture all the plunder that they can, uh, including the sheep and the herds and everything, and they they move south of the Dead Sea and then back up to the north. And among the captives, they it doesn't talk about them killing anyone, but they take Lot and his wife and his daughters captive, and they head north. And so Abraham hears that he's been taken captive in verse 14, and he takes 318 trained servants. Often we move past that pretty quickly. These are his, this is his security team. These are his shomerim, to use a Hebrew word that was used by the precursor to the IDF, the watchers. These are trained warriors, and he's going to go into combat. Now, it doesn't say these are the only ones that were there. He took some of the Hittites uh, from the area with him, but they go up and they go in hot pursuit of these four kings uh, as they head north. And so they have attacked these cities on the west side, or east side of the Dead Sea. They probably, here's Zoar, where we believe it is, on the southern tip of the Dead Sea. And so they've come around to the east side, excuse me, the west side, and they've headed north. And Abram and his men are going to overtake him at the Canaanite city of Laish. Now, one of the interesting things, we, we do this when we go to Israel, we go up to Tel Dan, and this is the ancient gate, Canaanite gate at Laish. Uh, you're looking at a gate that Abraham looked at. Isn't that cool? Abram probably went right by this gate on his way, and he may have even uh, gone past it on the way back. So this is uh, the size of it at the archaeological dig. Actually, the picture on the left was taken 12 years ago. The picture on the right was taken this summer. And this is the model that they've put together to so that we can see what this gate would have looked like uh, when the city was strong and when it had its walls around it for protection and uh, all of that. And they've got little figures down here on the steps coming, walking up to the, uh, to the gate. Here's a close-up of on the right of what we see on the left. So that's the gate at Laish. So Abraham defeats them. Why does Abraham do that other than just rescuing Lot? Why is he rescuing everybody else? Why doesn't he just send in an A-team to pull Lot and his family out? But he completely destroys the military capacity of the enemy, and he recovers all of the plunder. He rescues all of the captives, and he's going to restore them. Why does he do that? Because God told him in Genesis 12-3 that you are to be a blessing. He's fulfilling his divine mission to be a blessing to his neighbors. So on his way uh, back, uh, he's met in verse 17. The king of Sodom comes out to meet him. And the king of Sodom wants to give him, get a little credit for some of this as well. He's, he's in it for what's in it for him. And they stop here at... Uh, 
where, where do I have it? Uh, right here, Jerusalem, this is Bethel, but Salem or uh, Jezreel, Jerusalem is located right here below this uh, second circle here. And uh, the Valley of Shavat is off to the west of, uh, of, of Jerusalem. And they're going to have a meeting with the priest king of Jerusalem. Now, you've got to remember that, that, that probably at this time, because later on when you get to the city of Jebus, it's only about six or seven acres. It's not that large. And you get here, it's probably much smaller than that, maybe, maybe two or three acres. So this isn't, but, but the priest king comes out. And in Genesis 14, 18, we're told then Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. That's not his name, that's his title. Melchi means king. Malach is the Hebrew word for king, or Melech, rather, is the Hebrew word for king. So when you put a possessive on it, it changes to Melchi, and Zedek is the Hebrew word for righteousness. That means king of righteousness. Now that's interesting. He is the king of Salem, the Jewish tradition here, and this goes way back before the time of Christ, the Jewish tradition is that this is Shem, the son of Noah. I think that's possible. At least if you work out the timelines, it's very possible Shem would have been, uh, by this time, probably four or 500 years of age, but he, he wouldn't have necessarily died yet, looking at how long men of that gener- of his generation lived. And uh, he would not have died until uh, Abraham was probably 150 years old. It's, it's, um, it's interesting what some of the Jewish traditions bring. We can't give it the credibility of Scripture, or we can't check it out anyway, so you can't be dogmatic about it. But I've always thought that that, that would make a lot of sense, because it is that line of, of Shem that is a spiritual line from Noah, and it is uh, it is the line of Shem in in Noah's prophecy there after the boys got him drunk and uh, uh, shamed him uh, because he's lying naked drunk in his tent and Ham ridicules him and the other two back into the tent holding up a blanket showing respect for the father bring him out and then he announces this this uh, blessing and curse on on the descendants of his sons. And Shem is going to be the one that has the spiritual focus. And so uh, Abram is a descendant of Shem. So Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, this isn't communion. You'll find some people who say, well, that, that's communion. It, it was just typical. We're going to have a celebration. We've had a great victory. We're going to bring out food. We're, we're going to bake all this bread, and we're going to bring out wine, and we're going to have a party. We're going to have a great time and a great celebration. You think about all the festivals later on in, in Israel. They were times of celebration, times when all the families would come together at Passover, at Pentecost. You would go and you would worship the Lord, but you're, you're not home. You don't have the chores on the farm to do. And everybody gets together and celebrates God's grace in their lives. And it's a great family time, just like it. At Christmas, in our culture, we all get together, families come at Thanksgiving and Christmas, and we just have a great time and eat way too much food. So Melchizedek comes out, he brings out food, and he blesses Abram. He pronounces a blessing on him, and he says, Blessed be Avram of 
El Elyon is the Hebrew. El is the word for God. Elyon is the word for all-powerful, almighty God. He identifies God as the most high God, and then he says he is the, it's translated the possessor of heaven and earth, but the Hebrew word is kana. Now, it sounds like the same root word for Cain. Remember, Eve says in Genesis uh, 4.1, I have acquired a man from the Lord. But there's this homonym that also means to create. And it's very possible that's, the, that's what Eve is saying there. I have created a man with the help of the Lord. And so you have this, this word, and according to Brown Driver Briggs, which has been a standard Hebrew, Hebrew lexicon, says that this word is used of God as originating or creating. So what Melchizedek is saying is, blessed be Abram of, by God, most high El Elyon, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's not a pagan because no pagan would ever think of any of their gods as the one who created the heavens and the earth. So Abram and Melchizedek are going to have a bonding moment here because they both worship the same God. And then in verse 20, he goes on to say, and blessed be God most high. And that doesn't mean they're, they're giving something to God. It means that they're praising God because God has given Abraham the victory over, over the uh, armies of the east, and they've rescued everybody. No life has been lost, and he's been able to recover all of the plunder. He's delivered your enemies into your hand. And then we have this statement, and he gave tithe, a tithe of all. Hmm. And you've heard many sermons on tithing that Abraham is giving a tithe here, and this is what we should follow. The only difference is that in 1416, at the bottom of the slide we read, so he, that is Abram, brought back all the goods, that's all the plunder that, that the kings of the east had taken from the five kings of the valley, and he brought back all their plunder and also brought back his brother Lot and all of his goods as well as the women and the people. So he's giving a tithe of the plunder to Melchizedek. He's not touching his own bank account here. Now, I'm not saying that to minimize Abram's generosity, but what he's doing is from the plunder of what was stolen from the people, has been, God has given it back to them, and so from that he is giving a gift, a tribute of gratitude to Melchizedek. To Melchizedek. He's, this is not to ever be used as a pattern for giving because he's not giving his own money. There's no sacrificial giving going on here. There's no, uh, it's free will giving, but it, it's no, there's no mandate to ever give 10%. This had become a, a standard. So what we learn from this is that worship includes the paying of tribute or offering something in gratitude to God for some blessing in our lives. We give thanks to God and we exhibit this by, by giving something uh, in relation to the service of God. Something else we see here that is involved in worship is that worship sometimes involves vows or making oaths. Now that's going to relate to the fact that, that later on we'll see that oaths are that which uh, that, that initiates a covenant. 
There were a lot of covenants in the Old Testament that didn't involve sacrifice. Most people think it's the sacrifice that initiates the covenant. But a sacrifice didn't initiate God's covenant with, uh, with Phinehas, the son of, uh, of our grandson of Aaron. You don't have a sacrifice with the oaths, the covenants that are made between uh, Abimelech of Gerar, who's one of the Philistines, and, and uh, Abraham at Beersheba over who gets the water rights to which wells. There's no sacrifice. There's just an oath that is sworn. It's the swearing of the oath that initiates a covenant. So the king of Sodom then wants to get a little credit for all this, and he goes to Abram. He says, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. You know, you ought to get something out of this. There's nothing wrong with that. Give me the people and take the goods. But Abram says to the king of Sodom, I raise my hand to, the, to Yahweh. He's sworn an oath. God most high, El Elyon, the creator of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, and these describe the sons of the Hittites from around Hebron, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their, their portion. So later on as we go through this, we'll see that in Abraham that worship involves rituals. And in Genesis 17, we have... Uh, the ritual of circumcision. In the church age, what you'll often see people do is they will relate this to, to, the, uh, to the new covenant, which is alleged, which many people think is in effect today, and it's not. And so they say that it is the Lord's table. That's not the analogy. The analogy is baptism. Baptism is that which, spirit baptism, is that which makes the church-age believer unique and distinguished from all other believers. That is the sign of the church age. It's not communion. It is baptism by the Holy Spirit. That is what is unique in our identification with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. So worship involves rituals. That would include why we do water baptism or Christian baptism is because that is a teaching aid to teaching people about positional truth and baptism by the Holy Spirit. We also see in Abraham that worship involves intercessory prayer. What happens in Genesis 18 is that he finds out that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and he goes, and, he, and he's basically interceding with God to allow Lot and his family to escape before God judges uh, Sodom. Uh, later on, Abimelech, who is the king of Gerar, uh, he pulls the same deal with him that he did with the Pharaoh down in Egypt, and he says, Sarah's my sister. That was a half-truth because she's his half-sister. Um, he says, Sarah's my sister, not my wife. And so Abimelech is, puts her in his harem. And then God begins to bring judgment upon all the people in Abimelech's household because he's got to protect Sarah and the seed from any kind of involvement from another male other than Abram. And so they all get sick. And so when Abram realizes this, he confesses his sin, takes ownership for it, and then intercedes with God to restore their health and their strength. And so we see that worship is obedience and worship is Abram being a 
blessing to those around them. And then two more things, and then we'll be done with Abraham. In Genesis twenty-two fourteen, after God provides a ram as a substitute for Isaac, and the whole scenario where Abram takes Isaac up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him, and then God stays his hand. It was all about trust. It wasn't about that God really wanted Abram to kill his son. It was, are you going to trust me with the promise I've made to you? Do you really, truly trust me? I've given you everything you wanted, and now I'm asking you to give it all up, but I promise that you'll always have it. Are you really willing to trust me no matter what? That's what Genesis 22 is all about. And when God provides a substitute ram for Isaac, Abram calls the name of the place Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide. And this is uh, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And so God is the one who provides everything. And then last of all, worship involves burial by faith. I don't think it's right to take this to say that that. Christians ought to be buried. Some people do that, but that's not what I'm pointing out here. Pointing out here is that Sarah died, and in the ancient world, what you would have is that they would take you and they would put you in a tomb until the body decomposed and the bones were were left, and then they would take the bones and they would put the bones into a pit, into a tomb, with your ancestors, and thus the phrase, you'd be gathered to your ancestors. And typically what would happen is that when Sarah died, they would take her bones back to Haran to be buried with her family, to have her bones gathered with her ancestors. But God's given them a new land. So Abram is going to buy the the cave of Machpelah. He's going to bury Sarah there because this is the land We are the ancestors. This is the land God has given us. I'm not taking her back somewhere else. What happens later on? When Joseph dies in Egypt, actually when Jacob dies in Egypt, what do they do? They take his body back and they bury him in the cave of Machpelah. And then when Joseph died, Joseph made them promise that when God delivered them from slavery in Egypt, what were they to do? They were to take his body back, and they were to bury it in the promised land. And his burial site is in Shechem. And you can, to this day, and I've been there, go to the tomb of Joseph. So what we see is all of these things now are being developed for us to talk about worship because Abram and his family understand that all that there is, all that they have, and all that the time that they have is all the Lord's. It's not theirs. And that's the mentality that's at the core of worship. We'll come back and talk about Jacob next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study, to reflect, to be reminded of your grace, but also of who you are as the creator God of all things. We cannot imagine this. We we can sit and we can think and we can reflect which we should do, but we cannot even begin to probe the depths of what it means that you are the Most High God, El Elyon, creator of the heavens and the earth, and how foundational it is to worship, to understand that you are the creator of all things. And thus this this issue with evolution and this debate strikes at the very core of worship, 
because it destroys your identity as the creator, as the unique God, the holy God of all creation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.